Let's jump in on today. Um, I love this. I love this topic. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to work on disciple making, and um, I, I probably have too many in there, but disciple making as spiritual mothers and fathers. And um, yeah, this is, uh, as you guys know, you've all heard about this resurrection, um, but I'm not assuming you all have been given a biblical theology of it. And I think that that's what's extremely important is that in some ways this is really sort of, um, yeah, you need more? Any, any others? Good. Got it? Everybody got one? Um, uh, absolutely. Great. All good? Yeah, so, so what I want to do with you guys is really develop um, a type of biblical theology um, for disciple-making. Obviously, we're to make disciples, and there's a lot of great stuff in the evangelical world on, on disciple-making that's really important, and I'm really thankful that a lot of my discipleship happened um, first in the evangelical world, particularly Young Life, where I was uh, really powerfully discipled. I'll never forget, um, I had two Young Life leaders because I had a freshman, sophomore year at one high school in southern Indiana, and then I had a junior, senior year in Indianapolis, Indiana. So two different high schools, two different uh, young life leaders. Both of them were incredible. And the first one, um, a guy named Mike Ashburn, went by Ash, uh, saw my buddies and me and saw that there was energy with us, there was leadership with us. He could tell that I was a committed believer, my two buddies not as much, and made a very conscious decision to invest in us and to build close relationship with us. So has meeting with us in kind of a formal way. I'll never forget this weekend, ever. He took us to his home state of Tennessee, and we went caving with him. So two of us plus him caving in Tennessee. I'll never, ever forget that experience. It was so formational for me, having that much time with him in his truck and talking about things. Um, then my junior, senior year, that young life leader actually took me aside, and it was very intentional explaining to me, okay, this is how I do things. I've got, and you guys have heard this 100 times, but I, was, he applied it to me the first time I'd ever heard it. I've got kind of the 500 that I ministered to. We had a really large young life group in Indianapolis. I've got the 70 that helped to minister to the 500, and, and so I can think about that. Then I've got the 12, then I've got the three, and I'd like you to be part of my three. So he gave me a biblical picture, showed me how Jesus had done it, and invited me to being part of the three. And he said, would you meet with me every single week for the next two years? It was George Moore. And I said, of course. I mean, I, I was thrilled, right? So I was really blessed to experience that kind of intentional, evangelical, parachurch disciple-making. And, and then learned to do a very similar model of that in my five years at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. But things began to really click for me just about probably five to seven years ago. Um, and before I, 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 get in, I get into that, um, and if you have your Bibles, you can just turn to Psalm 78. We're, we're going to primarily work out of Psalm 78, which is really a, a theology, a biblical picture of uh, mother and father, son and daughter, generational disciple making. You just kind of open your Bible to Psalm 78. Uh, but before we get there, let me give uh, two parables and a regret. That's how I want to start with two different parables and regret. And by the way, when I tell stories from my own life and experience, I generally use them as parables. That's how I understand that they're operating. I'm not telling stories because they're fun, although they are often fun, or because they're cute. 
um, I actually am trying to employ Jesus's pedagogy. So um, let, me, let me tell you a parable. Um, this is the parable of the pontoon boat crisis. Some of you have heard this. Actually, Madeline was, was actually a part of this parable. Um, so some of you heard uh, my family was given an opportunity to vacation in somebody's uh, house on a little island in the middle of the Mississippi River. And to get to that little island and the vacation house, we actually had to rent a pontoon boat. I know nothing about pontoon boats. I love kayaks. I love canoes. Pontoon boats, I do not know. So they gave me a little, like literally 15-minute instruction where we drove around in a circle and told me how to, you know, use um, elements of the pontoon boat, but primarily just warned me that, A, you don't ever want to run out of gas, and B, the barges on the Mississippi are extremely dangerous and they can't stop. They're such large ship entities, they can only move one direction. So it's everybody else's job to get out of the way of the pontoon boats, excuse me, um, of the barges, particularly at night. Well, don't run out of gas, watch out for the uh, barges. And if you're not careful and you do run out of gas and you get hit by a barge, he, quote, it's Davy's locker for you, Davy Jones's locker for you. And I, I kind of remember that in my sort of pirate reading back when I was young, but I thought, I think that means we're going to drown, you know. Um, so, you know, we got out of the pontoon, it was super fun, we're all having fun. And at first, it seemed pretty simple, you use the key, you know, you know. Um, it was old, old, old pontoon boat. But we take it out, and it's really fun. And then I try to dock it, and I slam into the dock, but that doesn't seem to be that big of a problem either. You know, big, big rubber things in the front of it, you know. <laughs> These guys grew up on a lake, big lake. They, yeah, so I had no idea what I'm doing. So but it's super fun. And so I'm like, this is so much fun. Like, let's take the kids out for a sunset pontoon ride. And Catherine is like, you know, Stuart, I mean, sunset, that means it's going to get dark. The barge is, I'm like, oh, it's just an hour before it's going to get dark. We got plenty of gas. No worries, and we have a reserve gas tank in case there's a problem. So we go out, and it is super fun. The sun is setting. We're having a blast. It's like Tom Sawyer, you know, on the Mississippi, and I'm thinking of all these epic things. And then um, it, the engine stopped. And I mean, you, you know that feeling, right? It's like in your car, if you boat in your boat, and you're like, oh, no, oh, no. Oh, my goodness. So let's try to start it up again. And it started. I thought, oh, it just was a freak thing. Went about a foot, then it died again. Started it, went about a foot, then died again. I was like, what is going on? Oh, it must be that we have a, a, a gas issue. I guess I didn't have as much gas as I thought I had in the tank. No problem. Uh, Mr. David Jones told me how to switch out and use the reserve tank. So, you know, I go in the back, I get the reserve tank out. I, I connect the hose to the reserve tank, put the um, stand back down, and it starts. And then we're all like, yay! And then it dies. No! Okay. Now it is getting dark. And this is without any exaggeration whatsoever. I have a truth teller here. Um, lightning begins to flash. And thunder begins to roll. And a storm's coming on the Mississippi. And now I'm getting very, very concerned. And then I get more concerned when I hear this. Ah, ah. And literally, like, like, like in the movies, this kind of searchlight's going, whoa. Wah, wah. And there, the barge is on the move for its evening stroll um, and gobbling up small pontoon boats. And then everyone, everyone's like, ah! I mean, everyone's freaking out. Jillian, who's like five, she's like, ah, she's hyperventilating. I'm like, get a bag for Jillian. Have her in the bag. Do something. Like, they do that on television. Oh, you know, she's freaking out. And Ellison's like, Daddy, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. Um, 
Maybe you and I dive in and try to pull the pontoon boat to the bank. This is like a, it's an old big pontoon boat. I was like, I'm, I'm game for it, let's do it. And I'm like, no, no, what am I thinking? We can't pull a pontoon boat. I mean, like, the tide's going in the other way. I'm like, we can't pull a pontoon boat. We're gonna go, I'm trying to stop, and moment start. I mean, we are just like, huh. Of course, Catherine's like, everyone, let's just pray. You know? And I'm like, pray! Pray he won't help us now, you know? I'm like, I've got six kids on a boat. I mean, the barge is like, it is moving toward us, and we can't move. So, Catherine's, of course, praying. So we, and it starts. Basically, what it took was, I think it was 10 different starts and stops, and it moved us about five feet every time until we finally found some dock. We had no idea. We thought we were on the other side of the island. We had no idea where we were. Um, some dock where we finally got this pontoon boat tied up and I walked up to the house and I just said, I, I, I don't even know, I'm so sorry, I don't know who you are. I don't know what I'm doing with a pontoon boat, but there's a barge out there and I just had to tie up at your dock. The guy's like, what? Now, let me give you the apocryphal part of the story. Um, the apocryphal part of the story is, so, so basically there's, a, there's an old man who's in, the, in another room. He's like, what's the problem out there? And his son's talking to me, he's like, Dad, they've got engine trouble. He's like, engine trouble? We haven't had that in 50 years. Get your rifle. I'm like, no, 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 not Indians. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not engine trouble. It's, 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 it's engine trouble. Anyway, what's true is they did say engine trouble. They said, engine trouble, and that's where it ended. At that point, I thought making the kids laugh would be helpful. Um, all right, that's the first parable. Second parable. Um, when uh, my oldest son, Ellison, was growing up, he, as, as, as kids do, uh, he loved to, like, you know, take a shower, and then, like, like, Daddy, like, what stuff do you use? Like, like, like aftershave, cream, when to put it on his face, you know, and when to put a little gel in his hair, and he called it my equipment. He's like, give me your equipment, you know? <laughs> like, I want to put on what you put on, you know? It's just classic. Um, and, uh, and it's funny, because that's when he was, you know, three or four. Um, but in many ways, there's many ways in, still, in which he still imitates me to the degree that Dan O'Regan, the resurrection wag, if you know Dan O'Regan, says that after Easter last year, where Ellison and I were both dressed almost completely alike with blazers, vests, bow ties, he said, so who dresses who between Ellison and Bishop Ruck? Um, is it Ellison or is it Stewart? Well, obviously, I would argue, um, of course, he imitates me, right? He was imitating me when he was three. It just looks different when they're 20. Two parables, and here's a regret. I am very fortunate that with a quarter of a century of ministry behind me, I don't have many regrets. I'm really thankful. But I do have a couple, and one of my biggest regrets is this. I lost between my university years and five years ago, which would be uh, 15 years, I lost 15 years of intentional disciple making. And I regret it. The pressures of uh, building resurrection and of growing a church um, from about 150 to you know, 1150 were really intense and took all my time, all my energy, or so I thought. But how I regret that even in those high-pressured years, I wasn't intentionally fostering even one or two spiritual sons intentionally. Now, God had grace and mercy, and I have spiritual sons from that era, Williamson being one of the key ones that I laid hands on on Sunday, but I wasn't intentional. They didn't know that I was being a spiritual father to them, I didn't name the means, but I didn't do what George Moore did for me my junior year of high school. You can do one of my three. That's how this is going to work. I didn't do that. I really regret that. 
And so I, I share that with you. So what I want to start with as we look at, at, at Psalm 78 is this. What we have in Psalm 78 is a disciple-making design. Um, and here's the last part of the, uh, the pontoon boat story. The next day, I called the marina and I said, hey, this pontoon boat doesn't work. It's just, it's not working. It's the engine, there's, there's engine trouble. Um, so they came out to the island and he looked at it. And it was really funny because he went to the very back where the reserve tank was. He opened up the seat that was there. And you can see that the hose that went to the reserve tank, um, I had not put it in through a hole it was supposed to go in, but I put it on top of a piece of wood and the seat went on top of that hose. So actually what was happening, of course, is that the gas, there was gas, it just couldn't go through to the engine. I just had not understood the design of the pontoon boat, which is to say in that parable, design really, really matters. We actually were in a life-threatening situation with that barge. If I had understood the design, which he had not told me about, so bad on him, um, and I hadn't understood, bad on me, because it was pretty obvious if you'd looked at it carefully, um, we wouldn't have had any issue at all. We'd have had gas, we'd had fuel. Our near crisis would have been completely averted. Design matters so much. I would say that in the gospel, the design of the gospel the reality of the resurrection and crucifixion of our Lord is of life and death reality. Second, not only does, is there something design, there's an imitative design. We are made to imitate others. It is part of our wiring in the Lord. It's part of how he made us. It's one of the most important things I hope you learn about leadership is the imitative power of leadership and the imitative responsibility of leadership and the way that you yourselves are made to be imitators of others. I think this is one of the least plumbed, least delved into aspects of leadership. I don't know why it's not taught and talked about all the time because Paul talks about it all the time. So there's a reason why Ellison looks at me when he's three. He's like, I want to put that after save lotion on my face, even though he wasn't shaving, right? Um, of course he did because he's imitating me. And there's a thousand stories of how children are imitating. Uh, those that are around them. So let's look, at, let's look at Psalm 78. Verses 1, this is a, this is a very long psalm. So I want to verses, work on verses 1 to 8 with you guys in 17 to 20. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things which we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to, them, to the coming, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Jump down to 17 to 20. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? By the way, this is one of the most existential questions of all personhood. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Will God provide? And I'll discipline myself now because when I'm preaching on a Sunday, and I won't go into it yet. But I can't wait to, to teach this on Sunday about the provision of God. He struck the rock so the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread 
or provide meat for his people. The word of the Lord. Okay, so let's look like a disciple-making design, disciple-making urgency, disciple-making table, and doing disciple-making. And I already know that you're not going to have enough space if you're a note-taker, probably in the first one, because the first one's the bulk of it, okay? The first one's going to kind of get us, I think, clearest on this, disciple-making design. Okay, the first design we have, this, this, this just connects perfectly with um, Canon's teaching on, on sacramental worldview, is an incarnational design. The disciple-making design in Psalm 70 is an incarnational design. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will tell a, I will paint a word picture. That, that what we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. In other words, how will we learn the things of God? We'll learn them from our parents. That's a sacramental, incarnational reality. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. Wonders he's done. Glorious deeds of the Lord. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. Then look, look at this is the most incarnational sort of clarity here about design, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. So don't just think straight up pedagogy or straight up teaching. Think incarnational reality. That from the very beginning, when God wants to communicate to his people who he is, yes, he gives them the law. Yes, he gives them the Torah. Yes, he gives them the revelation of himself given and written in what's called the ten words of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19. He gives them that. But how will those realities be transmitted? How will they be imparted? It has to be incarnational from the very beginning. Do you see the prototype of Jesus himself? Do you see the prefiguring of our Lord himself in mothers and fathers? That Jesus himself will be the Word. He will incarnate the Word. He is the Word of God. But that is prefigured in parents who are teaching their, parent, their children. This is Deuteronomy 6. Again, don't you see that as, oh, you know, that's like a thing that parents are supposed to do for their kids but never actually do. Deuteronomy 6. Which is connected with the Shema, right? The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel. And then it says, and parents will teach these things to children. As they're walking, as they're going, as they're coming, as they're coming, going and coming in. This is an incarnational design. The disciple-making design is first and foremost incarnational. The gospel is designed as incarnational. In the Hebrew scriptures, there's a tent of meeting. There's an Ark of the Covenant. There's stone tablets. There's parents. There's the people of God who are receiving this. Incarnate beings. And obviously this finds its utter and complete peak, as Canon just taught us. And the Word became flesh. John chapter 1. And the Word is administered by spiritual fathers and by spiritual mothers. An incarnational gospel incarnates disciples. So your disciple-making is profoundly, deeply, richly incarnational. An incarnational disciple incarnates disciples. That means this is all about people's names and people's stories and who they are and what they look like and where they come from. It's all about those things. We're making disciples. It's deeply connected to those things. Okay, I want to do a little bit of exploration around um, this work of, of uh, incarnational design. And this is really, and this is really the, this is really the New Testament basis um, in so many ways for what we're getting here in Psalm 78. So let's go to our New Testament scriptures and go to, if you've been around me at all, one of my favorite verses, um, 1 Corinthians, in sections, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because in 1 Corinthians 4, we have, it's, it's, you know, its theme is the ministry of the apostles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have is really, again, now a New Testament Pauline theology of discipleship and how he understood discipleship. Verse 4. 
Start with verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Catch that? All right, here we go. For though you have countless guides or thousands of guides in Messiah, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Messiah as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Wow. I mean, he is so linked with Timothy that if you treat Timothy with arrogance, you treat me with arrogance. That's how linked we are. It's almost as if Timothy is his son, which he is in the gospel. As fullness of a sonship, as biological sonship in so many ways. And particularly for Paul, who's a celibate. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. You hear a dad's voice? You hear kind of Papa Bear? Um, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, incarnational. You see that? The kingdom of God consists in power, wonders, signs. Oh, we're back to Psalm 78, right? Um, that the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and wonders that he has done. Verse 4, Psalm 78. You see, Psalm 78, verse 4, connects exactly with Paul saying, here's what this is going to look like when we minister in a, in, in a kind of incarnational design of discipleship. It will not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? All father images. All parent images. Do I come to you with discipline or to come to you in a spirit of gentleness? All right. Let's look at this song. This is extremely important. Using Psalm 70 as our main basis, but also then uh, New Testament scriptures. 1 Corinthians 4. Okay, first we read um, that, that Paul, not first we read, but one of the first points is that Paul has become a father. Verse 15b, for I became your father. The word became there is the word begotten, which is to say that that, 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 I, that something has transformed in me as I become your father. There, there, there's been a begottenness. In other words, I've been made a father. In other words, you, I was made a father. How? Through the gospel, he says. I became your father in Jesus through the gospel. The ministry of the gospel actually makes fathers and mothers out of us. So you can't just, and I think this is happening some as we get this teaching out more and more, but you can't separate spiritual motherhood and fatherhood as some abstracted notion, now I'm a spiritual mom or dad because I want to be. You become a spiritual mom or dad as you minister incarnation of the gospel to somebody else. That makes you a mom or dad to them. You don't, you don't just make yourself a mom or dad to them. That would be weird and strange. And that's where this thing could get very weird and strange, by the way. Almost cult-like. The only way you become a father or mother is you're given that authority through the ministry of the gospel, which is to say, this is something you've invested in in the gospel. Maybe you've led them to the Lord. And maybe they already knew the Lord, but now you're investing to, to, to see them transformed in the Lord, to see them matured in the Lord. It happens in the gospel. And when it happens in the gospel, there is a bond that is so powerful, you can only describe it as a mom-son bond, a, a dad-son, dad-daughter, mom-daughter bond. It's that powerful. It's that strong. They represent you. They bring your DNA which is why he says, when I send Timothy, I send myself. That's exactly what I'm doing. By the way, do you understand that's the only way that we're going to multiply the gospel? Right? And the gospel all depends on one person, which is my regret for 15 years. Is so much of resurrection depended on me, my preaching, my leadership, my charisma. And that was just how it was. 
And I woke up and wait, 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 that's not at all what, that's, that's not how this works. You actually give it away in intensive relationship and deep love and affection and complication and conflict. We'll get into that. We're talking about, you know, parents and kids. It's not always easy at all. It's complicated. Well, it's complicated. Yeah. But it's worth the complication because of what you get. Does that make sense? This, I did, this, this just continues to blow my mind. I mean, I've read this over and over again for six years. I can't get over it. How central this is to the multiplication of the gospel. So that the gospel is being multiplied and not somebody's idea or some new fad or something else. The gospel gets multiplied when it's incarnated in the incarnational design. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. There's a deep bond. It's really interesting. Our, our diocese was formed on this. Um, our movement was formed on this. By God's providence and design, I'm a 24-year-old, far from God, living in Chicago, far from evangelical Orthodox faith, in the liberal, very, very liberal Episcopal Church, and I'm pursuing priesthood at the Diocese of Chicago, and I have to get a recommendation kind of signed off by my former priest, who is Father William Beasley, who now leads the Greenhouse Movement, our missionary general of our missionary society. So I come out to West Chicago, where he's pastoring Church of the Resurrection in West Chicago, to kind of get him to sign off. And what happens then is he confronts me in my confusion, he confronts me in my immorality, with love and gentleness like a father should, calls me to follow Jesus. I hear the call of the Lord through Father William. I become a follower of Jesus, and I become a follower of Father William. And I begin to imitate his ministry, and I return to the Lord. That was really, in so many ways, the spark of what God has done in the last 30 years, started there. So our very diocese is formed on that bond, on a father-son bond. And how did he become my father? In the gospel. He shared the gospel with me. And I bonded with him. Now, I knew it was Jesus, and I've always been very clear about that. And women have had some significant disagreements. We're actually very, very different people. Um, and yet he's my father. And I honor him. I'm his bishop. He's my father. And I honor him in that way. So that's actually the very foundation you know, in terms of relationships that God even started this whole movement. That's how it started. And I, can, I just feel like we keep going back to that because that's what God even bore fruit from in the very beginning. That's just good to know your, your history of our movement. It's so important to what God has done. So much so that, that then our sons and our daughters can be sent by us. And of course, logistically, I mean, Paul either couldn't because he's somewhere else or he's in prison, right? So if everything depends on Paul preaching the gospel we would still have a very small and probably interesting sect that historians would study that occurred in the ancient Near East after Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and some say was resurrected. That Peter and Paul and John, Lydia, didn't understand these realities that this could be multiplied through people incarnationally, it'd be very, very small. And our movement in 10 years will be not 2,700, which is now probably about, I don't know, 1,000 in 10 years, if we don't understand this, if you all don't understand this, um, that you don't understand that actually the way that God will spread the gospel through our movement is through God giving you sons and daughters begotten in the gospel by you sharing the gospel, living the gospel, loving in the gospel. But once you start that and you have hundreds, if not thousands of people that understand that, then it spreads like crazy. That, I mean, that, that's how we're seeing like the miracles are happening in Indonesia right now. Are just stunning. I got a whole story from Pat and Joan Crayer. I mean, tens of thousands on certain Indonesian islands coming to the Lord. How? It's being incarnated. It's being incarnated. It's amazing. Wow. So exciting. Okay. Um, two, two, two things on this. Okay. 
So as, as this happens, there's, there's two things that are necessary here. You've got to have a mom or a dad. You've got to have a son or a daughter, which is to say this. Okay, but you've got to have a mom or a dad. One of the great challenges in the church and one of my great personal concerns is that we have a significant leadership lack. I don't, I don't think we've taught leadership. I don't think we've trained people in leadership. I don't think we've created a place where people can become leaders. I don't think everyone, by the way, is given what I would call governance leadership. If that was the case, it'd be chaos because I'm really, you know, not everybody needs governance leadership, right? Not everyone needs to be a bishop or a team leader or a priest or, you know, whatever. Like, not everybody needs that. But everybody has a certain leadership calling of some kind whereby they lead their own lives in the Lord and they are in discipling somebody, which is a role of leadership. So I'm defining leadership in a kind of disciple-making role. Everyone has that. Okay. Everyone has some calling in, in, in that regard. But we have a massive leadership lack, judging going from the very top to all people involved. Okay. But not only do we have a leadership lack, we actually have a more serious situation that's happening in the church, is that when we finally do get leaders, and we get even governance leaders who can lead churches or lead movements or lead missionary societies, what we, what we have often there is what I call a lieutenant lapse. Not a leadership lack, but a lieutenant lapse, which means what? You may find great leaders, and you're like, man, I really like that leader, but the people that are around them are really hard to work with. They're really difficult. So you go, well, yeah, but I love that leader. That leader's awesome. It's just that the people around them are difficult. That means the leader's not awesome. Mm-hmm. That means the leader's not awesome. And I am so guilty of that. I'll be meeting next week with two individuals who don't go to resurrection. I have to repent of something. I have to sit with them, and I have to repent. Because several years ago, under my leadership, um, some lieutenants uh, brought a ministry to these people that was not done well. And the lieutenants have some skin in that game, but I have more. They're my lieutenants. I was still learning how to deploy lieutenants. I was still deploy- learning how to handle that in certain ways. Um, and now I've got to meet with these folks and say, well, that happened, and it was my leadership. And I'm really sorry, because a couple of folks got really hurt. My fault. Totally my fault. So I have not been perfect at this by any stretch, but I'm learning. I'm learning. Um, so it really matters to be very, very pragmatic, right? Might, I can't be there on Tuesday mornings every Tuesday morning anymore because of my, my, my leadership responsibilities. But Steve's there, right? Brett's there. You guys are fine. I mean, honestly, it's like, I know these men. <laughs> I've poured into these men for a decade with Crawl and 15 years with Williamson. I know these men. I trust these men. I know they're going to provide spiritual leadership, compassionate leadership, visionary leadership, and I'm with them every single week. Every single week I'm with them. We don't miss. So that's how this works. Does that make sense? That's, that's extremely important that, that we understand the way in which this kind of lieutenant laughs. You've got to fill that. Now that is very true for you all. So you're, you guys are doing, you're building ministry teams. You're thinking about who's serving under you, who's serving from you. You can scale this any way. Don't, please don't just think, oh, Stuart and a few priests. That's not how this works at all. Because where, wherever you're leading, you're being represented in some capacity by someone. Um, so you need to think about, okay, what's the vibe? What's the feel? And you're always adjusting this, by the way, in leadership and ministry. You don't always feel like every single person representing you represents you perfectly. You never get that. You just don't ever get it. Um, but you need to be attentive to it. I, I served under this great leader for several years, but he had one or two people alongside him, and they were almost impossible. He was loving and congenial and interesting, and you just wanted to be with him. But you're always worried that when you went to the meeting, he wouldn't be there, but the other person would be there. You'd be like, that's going to be anxiety-producing, and they're angry, and they're standoffish, and they always make me feel small. And so you like, lived as a follower in all this tension. Love him, can't work with him. Love him, can't work with him. That's a massive organizational problem, by the way. 
And I want to do all we can in our movement to make sure we don't get that. <laughs> um, why? Because of this. Here's the biblical theology for why. For why you can't have lieutenant laps. Because they're your sons and daughters. And they need to be that. A lot of this happens, too, with the professionalization of ministry. A lot of this happens with the professionalization of ministry. Well, you're not hiring sons and daughters. You're not, you're not planning sons and daughters. It's, it's business. It's, it's industrial. It's hiring. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. Yeah, of course, we, we, we hire, technically speaking. We're not hiring, right? We're looking at people who are called to work with us so that we can compensate properly so the ox is not muzzled. I'm not hiring. I don't run a, you know, I don't run a company, you know? But that happens in the church. That happens in mission agencies like that. You know, because it's so hard to raise up sons and daughters. So you default to the other. But I want to say to us, you know, and again, you guys are at the beginning of a lot of your work, and so don't go hard on yourself. It's, I, I'm 25 years in, and I've just gotten good at this in the last five years. So you got 20 years of messing up. Um, seriously, it takes, a, it takes a long time to get this. But I want, you to, I want you to understand it. I want you to have language around this. I want you to be able to go, oh, okay, yeah, sons and daughters, imitators, lieutenants. Yeah, 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 that's my goal. That's what I want eventually. I need to have total confidence that they'll represent me. And by the way, if you'll listen to your people that are being led by your lieutenants, if you'll listen to them and you'll watch them, they'll tell you. They will tell you how it's going. You may have to ask them because they want to be respectful of, of who's, who's leading them. But if you ask, you kind of know how to get in and out, they'll tell you how it's going. They'll let you know. Okay. Incarnational design. Um, that really gets into a B under disciple-making design. We're still on to that one. Um, imitative design. That the pedagogy of imitation is deeply, deeply gospel. We've really been working on this already. Um, there are over 10 references in the New Testament to imitation. Let me do a third part to distill disciple-making design. I would call it C. And that is that we see that the way that um, this design works is that it's generational. It's often in the Bible three or four generations that we're talking about. I talked about spiritual fathers, but, I, but I, of course I love spiritual mothers, and if you don't have fathers and mothers, you don't get life. Um, Got to have them both. So look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to take you here for two reasons. One is to highlight spiritual moms, and two is to show you how generations work. Paul, in his last letter, he's writing to Timothy, uh, chapter 1. Note, again, my beloved child. Just take note of that. I mean, it's like, John uses this too, right? My children in the Lord. I mean, this is, this is so much a part of how the apostles thought. My beloved child. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you, Timothy, constantly my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you more on affection in a minute. That I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Stop. All right. So two spiritual mothers, Lois and Eunice, two that will certainly be in places of great honor in the heavenly realm. Three generations from Lois to Eunice to Timothy. And then I would insert in their spiritual generation, which was Paul. So you've got two moms, spiritual father, Three generations all leading up to the ministry of Timothy. That's what it took for Timothy to be equipped, to be ready, to be prepared for his ministry. You already see the generational ministry happening. So you could call it three generations, you could call it four generations. 
But it's really important to understand that scripturally we think generationally. Back to Psalm 78. Look at verse 6 in Psalm 78. The next generation might know the teachings, the commandments of our fathers, to the children not yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they set their hope in God. Here's how I want you to think about generational ministry. Um, because as we get to the pragmatics, I'm going to pray for you guys today so that you either um, are clear about who you may have as sons and daughters in the gospel or who God may be giving you as sons and daughters in the gospel. And I want you to be clear about who they are, and they should know who they are. Um, okay, so this is how this works. The main way, so, so if I'm first generation, right, I'm going to focus on the second generation, the one after me. And I think this is, I mean, this is 10 to 15 years or so, it's kind of a generation just to get it concrete without being too rigid about that. So I'm going to be focused on that next generation behind me, 10 to 15 years, where my main focus, where my main energy is going to go. And that, that's all about focus. So I'm getting to know them. I'm trying to get into a relationship with them. Even though I, I have a lot of responsibilities, I'm saying it's one of my most important responsibilities. Um, so I want time with them in my home as part of, the, of what's important. Um, time getting to know them and their cares, concerns, and just being together. As I've often quoted my, my, my mentor and spiritual father, Archbishop Kawashi, you know, my spiritual sons can find my billfold on my bureau. Um, yeah, that's, that's how he talks about discipleship, is they know his bedroom. That's how close they've been to him. Um, that's a little weird in the States, so, you know, I just say, I hope our sons and daughters know where the coffee and tea is in the kitchen. Um, but I want them to know where stuff is. And I want them to come in and get, get themselves, you know, things. And, and I, I want greater closeness. Now, I am nowhere where I would love to be on that. The American culture slams me with this desire, by the way. It just pushes away the attempt to be closer and closer. You have to work so hard in the suburbs to even have any level of focus. So I'm, I'm not saying imitate me on this completely, but I do think you focus on the next generation. Then, together, you, the first generation, and the second generation, take the Magnuson, for example, together you're finding the third generation. So in other words, you're focusing on them, but then they're, right, they're finding who they're focusing on, and that creates a really important exponential reality, but then they're finding the next generation and helping to bring them in. This completely happened with Scott Cunningham. So I'm focusing on Father Scott Cunningham when he was a ministry resident here, a planning resident here before he went to Madison. I'm focusing on Scott. I'm discipling Scott. I'm training Scott. And Scott brings to me John and Jenna Perrine. You should get to know John and Jenna Perrine, Stuart. They're amazing people. Um, and actually other leaders here at Resurrection did as well. So then I begin to go, oh, okay. So basically they found the Perrines and they brought them to me. Not unlike how people are being brought to Jesus, right? Brothers are being brothers to Jesus. You've got to meet Jesus. That's how this works, very pragmatically speaking. Is you focus on one generation, well, if they're being taught to focus on the next generation, they're going to find the next generation. And as I said, uh, you know, to at our um, house orientation retreat, I said to everybody, you guys got to figure out who's coming next year. Um, I can't be totally responsible for everybody that fills out our orientation retreat or fills out Gregory House. Obviously, overall, that's my responsibility, but I'm not going to be as good finding the next generation as many of you are going to be. Right? In some ways, it's just time, because I'm focusing on the one right, right after me, and also it's generational. Right? So there's, there's great honor of an older generation within our movement, and it should be that way. There's also just familiarity generation to generation. You kind of butt up against the generations, and there's familiarity that happens there, and that's actually really, really important. I mean, have you ever seen like, somebody's getting older and older, and they think they can like, leapfrog generations and like, totally connect? And it's just, everybody hates it, right? It's like, oh, don't do that. Like, don't try to use our language, or, you know. It's just, it's a huge cringe factor, right? Well, it's because they don't understand. 
They need to focus on the next generation who then finds the third generation. Let, 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 let that generation butt up against each other. Um, now, honestly, it helps as a dad where I've got, I don't have millennials in my home. I have, I have you know, iGen, Gen Z, whatever we're going to call them, right? So I actually had them in my home. So I actually, I spent a lot of time with the next generation too. So I'm pretty good leapfrogging, yeah. But that, that, that will come to an end. So at some point, I won't be able to leapfrog as well as I can right now. And people will feel it, and they'll know it, and they'll be like, right. Okay, so you focus on the next generation, you find the third generation, but then what do you do for the fourth generation? So what am I doing for the fourth generation? I'm fighting for them. I'm fighting for them. I'm doing my best to teach the Bible. And to teach the doctrines of the church that has been handed down to me so that they'll receive the gospel undiluted. You have to understand in this, you holding to the gospel, you holding to the scriptures matters for the generations that are to come. My greatest fear is that I'll be one of those fathers that's talked about in Psalm 78, a stubborn and rebellious generation. You see how they had to start all over again sometimes in those generations that when certain generations abandon the gospel, they abandon scriptural fidelity, the next generation have to start all over again. And this is the reality I had as a son of the Episcopal Church, where I was confirmed and where I was deeply formed. They abandoned the gospel, so we had to start all over again. Now, God's been amazing, and we're seeing an amazing thing. But it's actually helpful for me to imagine, what could this have been if I'd been handed this? If I actually had to, had to build, not me, but us as a team, build everything almost from scratch. I actually had to fight my fathers, because they'd gone so apostate, was the role that I was put in. They weren't fighting for me. I had to fight against them because they'd abandoned the gospel. But what can happen when we understand that we're actually fighting for the generations to come? And that's, when, so, that's one reason why it's so important to be submitted to the word of God. And even when it's, and we'll get to suffering, sacrificial, and it involves suffering and it involves challenges in our lives, we're doing this for the generations to come. So you focus, you find together, and you fight. Ideas are not enough. Just teaching right doctrine, that won't be enough. We have to imitate it. We have to have people close to us. So again, there are many pastors who will not abandon the gospel. They will teach the gospel. But they actually haven't created the time or the vulnerability that it requires to raise up sons and daughters. So while they're, while they're teaching the gospel, will be commended. Have they actually taken the time to actually multiply themselves through others? Which is how the gospel has happened because we're back to our incarnational design. That's all disciple-making design. Okay. Disciple-making urgency. And you see this. We're getting into this. I'm getting into this already in Psalm 78. There's an urgency. We will not hide these parables. We will not hide the law from our children. Verse 4, Psalm 78. But we'll tell them to the coming generation. And then we get verses... um, seven and eight, we tell them to our children so they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Why is it so urgent that we not only evangelize, and evangelism and discipleship obviously should be just synonymous, but that, that we not only evangelize and in doing so disciple, but why is it so urgent that we also disciple those who have known the Lord? Because we forget the Lord. Because 
core to our sinful nature, one of the most pernicious, dark realities of our sinful nature is that we are forgetters. It marks us. We are betrayers and we are forgetters. And we don't believe the God's table in the wilderness. This, by the way, is one of the key functions of preaching. Is that in preaching, in sacramental preaching, you're creating remembrance. You're creating anamnesis. You're creating a situation where somebody can actually enter into the, the fullness of God again. The preacher is bringing the fullness of God again. The discipler, the spiritual mom or dad, you're actually not thinking, oh, I don't need to do this. It doesn't really matter if I do this this week or this month or whatever because they've already known the Lord. They've already, they're already saved, but they forget that they're saved. And then they don't multiply. What are they multiplying in their own lives? Forgetfulness. So there's an urgency toward it because we are a deeply forgetful people. And what happens in good discipleship is that I'm being disciple. I have a spiritual director, a wonderful, faithful Jesuit priest. Not all Jesuit priests are faithful. He is. Um, and he is part of my discipleship. I receive discipleship from my peers. I get discipleship from Father William. They help me to remember the goodness of God. They fill me with remembrance. Then I can turn around and fill Gregory House with remembrance. Or my, my uh, you know, Catherine, I have three cohorts where we're discipling men and women. I can fill our cohorts with remembrance. I can fill my children with remembrance because I'm being full of remembrance incarnationally. There's a deep urgency in this, of course, while I'm emphasizing the incarnational, to share the word. That, that, that in verse 5 of 78, we're commanded to teach our children, to teach them. So there needs to be a sharing of the word in the discipleship process. Um, that may happen in just the general preaching. That may happen in actual teaching Bible studies. So one thing that's been really important to me, um, my key disciples are my six children. And they are my priority. And I have been my priority. So it's still every week, and I started it with Madeline um, and Ellison. And now it's Christian and Jillian and Nathaniel. When he becomes 13, he'll join it. Um, we do what we do. What we try to do is a weekly discipleship that comes about two or three times a month with life. Um, where I taught them how to do inductive Bible study. They know how to take a passage of Scripture, how to take it, how to read it, how to understand what's happening in Scripture. Um, they can do the observation of the Scriptures. They can do interpretation of the Scripture, and they can apply the Scripture. And they can do that for themselves when they do Bible study. They can do it for somebody else. That's really important um, that, 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 that we're doing that kind of teaching with our disciples so that they are able to work in the Word of God. We share the Word of God. That's part of the urgency. Not only, should, not only do we share the Word, though, this is really important. I want you to be intentional about this in your disciple making. We share the wonders. We share the wonders of God. Verse 4. We will not hide the word of God from our children until the coming generations. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders. Did you see how you got in verse, verses 1 to 4 in Psalm 78? Word and wonders. Word and wonders. So you share the word. You teach, your, you teach your disciples the word. But teach them wonders. How do you do that? Have your wonder stories. Have your God stories. As I taught on um, like Palm Sunday. Like, have your stories where God has broken into your life in a beautiful, provisional, or miraculous way, and they're your God stories. And I curate those. I'm very intentional about those. And we tell them, and we know that our sons and daughters, and our sons and daughters go, here comes that story again. Oh, I hope they can say it. Do you know how happy I was when Crawl told the story of the building two weeks ago? Oh, my word. I didn't tell the story. He told the story. He's owning the story. It is his story. Right? So I've been telling him that wonder story since it happened. I pass it on. Kathy and I tell these stories in our, in our cohort. We, we tell, tell stories to each other in our cohort and what God's doing in our lives and the power of God. And we tell stories about how we survived early childhood years when our kids were young. And you're telling wonder stories, you know? And you're doing it all the time. So curate them. Know them. If you feel like you don't have enough of them, ask God for them. Oh, my word, he'll answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. It's so good. 
Okay. You're making disciples that way. All right, the disciple-making table. This is really interesting in this psalm. Psalm, uh, verses 17 to 20. Okay, so, so now we're still with the urgency of sin. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Spoke against God. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Okay, first of all, in disciple-making, one of the greatest ways in which we have a power against sin, which is to say the, the, the ministry of the cross, the way it's ministered to us is, um, is in disciple-making. So disciple-making and being disciples gives us one of the greatest ways to fight against sin, to have a power against sin. It's what um, some of the early church thinkers called self-mortification. You'll see it in Romans 8, putting sin to death. How do you put sin to death? It happens in disciple-making. As a matter of disciple-making is most real when we're dealing with issues of sin and suffering. So disciple-making is so important, not because it's just getting together you know, with, a, with, with a book for half an hour every week and kind of the formal things that I experienced, which was fine, but never went that deep, and I never let my sin be that known. Like I would say some sin because I wanted to be open, but I wouldn't go that deep with sin. Um, actually, in, in disciple-making, there's a disciple-making table, which is the table by which God has forgiven us of our sins, and we know it, Right? It's where the altar's present disciple-making insofar as we know we've been forgiven our sins. How, how do we know it? Because our sin's been revealed. We've revealed it ourselves. It's been exposed in our relationships. It's been named. And then we're forgiven of our sin by the person discipling us. If it happens between them or by others, it comes out in a very clear way. And you have a very real experience of knowing I'm forgiven because they just forgave me. Or they just named my sin and God's forgiven me of that sin. There's a power against sin in disciple-making. There's a table being set for us. And this brings in that reality. I talked about this last week. This is why we call Gregory House a house. It's because we're all sinners, and at some point, if we're in relationships long enough, we're going to sin against each other. And mothers and, and fathers and sons and daughters sin against each other. And they have tensions with each other, and they have hard seasons with each other. That happens in spiritual mothering and fathering and son and, son and daughtering as well. It's very, very similar. Why do we have tension and difficulty? Because we're sinners. One of us is sinning, both of us is sinning. It's inevitable. So let's just name it like that and say that's part of disciple making. And by, that's very humble for a disciple maker. And there are times when I have to go to my sons or daughters and say, I am really sorry. I sinned against you here. They'll confront me. Now, that was awkward. Why was that awkward? I don't know. Something was on my heart. I sinned against you. That's really important in our disciple making relationship. But also for me as a spiritual father to say, that was strange. I don't know what's going on there. I think. I think after a couple of years together or a couple months together or whatever, this is not happening in your soul well right now. Can we talk about that? Can we work that through? Now, I don't want to put any sheen on that. That's complicated. That's hard. The only worse thing than that is not doing it because then no one gets discipled, really, out of their sin, out of their sin patterns. No one gets really that close, Right? I just described much of the American church to you just now. No one's that close. No one's sin is that exposed or revealed. Terrifying. There's a power against sin. There's also a power to get through suffering. The disciple-making table is a table that is set for us in the wilderness. Verse 19, the wilderness is a place of, often of suffering, of trial. You all know your Bible as well. You already know that. So when a table set amidst suffering, amidst wilderness, 
There's a discipleship ministry there. Discipleship is greatly needed in large part because there's so much suffering in our lives. There's so much pain in our lives. And so discipleship is so important because that suffering will, will sometimes be more poignant than other times in our lives. We need people discipling us through those seasons. Discipleship should be there to help alleviate suffering. It's one of the most important reasons to disciple others and to be discipled is you will need at some point, if not at many points, the alleviation of suffering. So as a discipler, I want to see those I'm discipling and caring for, I want to see some of their suffering alleviated. I want to get alongside them and pray for them and, and care for them and reach out to them as they will reach out to me. I, um, I will never forget this moment. So um, it was a realization I had. I was going into surgery at the end of January after my long illness. And um, I said to Catherine, you know what I really want? So if I'm, you know, with it enough and if I can um, be present, what I really want is I want Father Brett and Deacon Steve to come and minister the Eucharist to me. Um, I want two guys I've invested my life in. I feel close to them. I feel safe with them. Um, would they come minister Eucharist to me? So I said, but, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go for it or not. So I really actually just asked them to be on call. Um, so Kathy went to them, and she asked them, and they were, oh, we would love to do that for Bishop Stewart. Um, so I did feel well enough, and I'll never forget this, because they, they haven't yet learned the content of the mass kit, which is like everything that you need for the Eucharist is in a little kit like this. So Crawl brought in like a packing box. I mean, it was like, <laughs> you know, and they were, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, they're pulling candlesticks out, boom, boom. I'm like, you can't light those things in a hospital room, you know. Um, they got candlesticks. I mean, they got the full, I mean, like, I was, I was waiting for somebody to bring in the, 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 the holy table from, you know, it was amazing. Like, these, like, like the boys did it up. I mean, they were just like, man, we're all in, you know. Um, and they ministered to me in my suffering. They ministered the presence of Jesus to me in my suffering. Right? So not only I as a disciple, but my disciples are ministering to me in my suffering. That's how this works. God set a table for me at that wilderness in that moment. Literally, he set a Eucharistic table for me. And that's what this looks like. And so we need the design, we need the imitation, and we need a table set through disciple making. All right, now just doing this. Okay, doing this. I'm going to leave about probably 20 minutes for us to have some good discussion around this. Doing this. Okay, first of all, uh, I've got uh, a few things. First of all, um, this is one of my favorite phrases from Morton Hansen, a business book he wrote, do less, then obsess. Great phrase. With disciple making, do less, then obsess. In other words, um, don't try disciple make 20 people. Disciple make four, who themselves are disciple making two. Now you're discipling 12, right? Exponential math. Think about it that way. So do less. Who am I to pour in right now? And then if you can, obsess, which is to say, obsess in regard to your schedule. How am I making sure this is always a priority with my weekly schedule and my monthly schedule? I taught you guys last week, you know, ministry, you think weekly, you think monthly. Um, so who in my weekly, monthly routine am I connected with regularly that I'm involved with in discipleship? I'm, I'm going to obsess my schedule around this, but I'm also going to be clear about who it is I'm pouring into so that I really can pray for them when I say, I'll pray for you. I really do have enough mind space in my discipleship mind to say, yeah, I got that. I'm tracking with that. I care about that. Um, and, you know, generally, uh, Evan Jokel's done some great thinking on this. There's a certain thing, and this is the Lord, the Bible. There's like a certain level you can give to three or four, another level you can give to probably seven or eight. It's kind of a band of influence you're going to start pushing out against. I'm, I'm kind of pushing out against mine 
as far as I can take it, but I need to right now. Um, and it's been given to me. So, you know, kind of, you know, and you have different levels of discipleship. There may be some you're very involved in, and you guys build your ministries will happen more and more. So you may have, like, you know, a group you're really involved in by God's providence in the gospel, and then another group that you're also involved in. It may even still be first generation, if you will. You're still focusing on them. That even within that generation, maybe different foci and levels of foci, but do less and obsess. Second, and this is really important in disciple making, be affectionate. Be warm. Different personalities, introvert, extrovert, I totally get that. But I think affection is, is a universal calling of the Christian. So you may express that, and in different cultural contexts, you express it in different ways, but be affectionate. Paul calls Onesimus in the book of Philemon, he calls him my heart. That's what he calls Onesimus, my heart. I am just so surprised by the, you know, everyone kind of makes Paul to be this irascible, impossible guy. And there may be some elements of his personality that were that way. He could certainly, you know, he seems to be a very strong personality. But one of the ways that strong personality manifested was he just loved people. Oh, he loved Timothy. Oh, he loved Titus. Oh, he loved Apollos. Oh, he loved Onesimus. He just loved them. And he told them he loved them. It's funny, years ago there was a leader at Res, and they would text me, and this is when texting was kind of a new thing, and they would, they would text me, um, LOL. And I came to the counter and I said, wow, this is a new thing among this generation. They're really free with their expressions of love. I'm assuming it means lots of love. See, here, here we go, here's the generational rub, right? I was leapfrogging and I shouldn't have been. Um, and I was like, wow. I found out later it meant laugh out loud. You know, it's before ha, 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 ha. Or if you're in Brazil, KKKKKKKKK. Um, but it actually, it actually did something in me. I went, well, I do love them. Actually, I should probably actually tell people that I love them more. Because um, I actually do love this person. And, uh, and it's not unusual now with, with many, like this, you know, that we'll finish a phone call, love you. And I go, I mean, with my kids, I always do that, of course. But I do that more and more with others, because I do love them a lot. And I actually have profound affection for them. And I think it's Pauline. I think it's biblical. Okay, third, and this is this is what I spent a little bit of time praying into. Who are you focusing on? So where's your focus? Who are you focusing on? Is there one? Is there two? Is there three? Many of you are starting new ministries. So you may not have anybody yet. That's okay. It's great. Prayer space, you know. Uh, who, who am I going to be called to focus on this next year? And, um, you know, some of my relationships, I'm 25 years in, are a bit more epic, right? It's like Williamson or Kroc, I'm using those examples. I mean, that's kind of, kind of a, that's a long-term nature. So it may be you're discipling somebody to focus for a year. So scale this as you need to. Uh, these, these things come and go in different ways, but who are you focusing on? Second, then, how are you together finding? So I want you to be intentional about that third generation. How are you together finding, and how are you training them to be finding? Are you making clear to them that that's part of their discipleship, is to be discipling somebody else? It's very simple. It hardly ever happens. Talked about a lot. Rarely incarnated. And then finally, um, more just a, a heart question. How willing are you to fight for the fourth generation? And how willing to understand that your fidelity to the Bible and to Holy Church 
has great impact on the fourth generation who will imitate you one way or the other.